0: Hello, I'm Llewellyn King, the host of White House Chronicle. Thank you for coming along. To most of us, the oceans are something very, very special. They're renewing, they're eternal. They're the place that we go to get refreshed, to face the world. We do it every summer. We're coming to the end of the summer now. And of course, all the beaches in the northern hemisphere have been surrounded with happy holiday-makers Very shortly, the southern beaches will be crowded with holidaymakers in places like Rio de Janeiro. But the oceans are not as healthy as we'd like to think. To talk about the oceans, their predicament, and what can be done, I have a very special guest today. She is Sylvia Earle. She is an oceanographer. She's a writer. She's an activist. And now she's a guest on this program. We're also joined by Linda Gasparello, the co-host of the program, but first of all, Sylvia, welcome to the broadcast. And tell us, what of those things I said are correct, and what are you? I do know that you're uh, an explorer in residence at the National Geographic, which sounds, I might say, like some sort of contradiction in terms. Uh, in residence and an explorer. We expect our explorers to be at the ends of the earth but not sitting in a residence situation. Tell all, please.
1: When National Geographic invited me to come on board, I asked if I could, if the ocean could be my residence and they said, well, that'll that'll do. (laughs) And I'm so glad to be on board here to be your guest to talk about something of really fundamental importance to everyone, everywhere, all the time. Even if you've never seen or touched the ocean, it's pretty obvious now that (laughs) the ocean touches you with every breath you take, every drop of water you drink, things we know about the ocean now in the 21st century that nobody could know when I was a child. You know, nobody been up in the sky to look back on earth and see it's a blue planet or down to the deepest part of the ocean and come back with evidence that there's life from the top to the bottom and even beneath the bottom of the ocean. So we're so lucky. Uh, We've got (laughs) knowledge that really gives us cause for hope in some would say a sea of despair. How did you come
0: to be an oceanographer And I know you founded a very large organization that seeks to uh, find spots of hope. Uh, I want to say islands of hope, but that seems a little confusing when you're talking about the ocean. But how, what is your life story with the ocean?
1: Well, it started very early when my parents took a summer vacation on the Jersey Shore and a wave knocked me over and got my attention. But it's life in the ocean that has held my attention. Uh, right up through till the present time. It's a living ocean. It's not just rocks and water. And I think like most kids, curiosity led me to dive in and I've been diving in ever since. I, I always, I didn't know what to call it, but I wanted to be what I now know is a scientist, a biologist and explorer, if you will, to keep asking questions Little kids start out that way, and we should never stop. I like that. Linda?
2: Uh, Sylvia, you are president and chairman of Mission Blue and the Sylvia Earle Alliance. And I thought maybe you'd tell us something about Mission Blue and your alliance. And Llewellyn uh, had spoken about the alliance doing something with Hope Spots. And tell us what Hope Spots are all about.
1: Well, I was one of the lucky individuals who was awarded a TED Prize in 2009 and given a chance to give a TED Talk and make a wish big enough to change the world. And then the TEDsters pledged to help me make that wish come true. And the next year, an expedition to the Galapagos Islands with 100 individuals who put their minds together to figure out what could be done to, go from a time of huh, decline to reverse that trend, whether it's it's the ocean or the way the ocean affects climate or climate affects ocean, the di- loss of diversity of life, the problems that have come about in my lifetime that are unprecedented in terms of our technological ability to not only kind of you know look at the land and clear cut forests and convert so much of the land to human purposes to literally clear-cut the ocean of wildlife using technology that did not exist when I was a child, but certainly is now being used to extract prodigious amounts of life out of the ocean with consequences that we now, for the first time, can see. So it's easy to look at the problems, and that's a good starting place. Imagine if we didn't know that the ocean is in trouble. Imagine if we did not know that we're in trouble if the ocean is in trouble, that the impact of the ocean on climate, on weather, planetary temperature, planetary chemistry, the whole system that keeps us alive really is anchored in the ocean, the oxygen cycle, water cycle, you name it. It's kind of, it's a blue planet. So one of the major outcomes of this expedition to the galapagos was to zero in on making the wish that i made to basically come true by developing not just new technologies little submarines and the like but the end point is to embrace the ocean with care with a network of places hope spots large enough to restore health to the to the heart of the planet, the blue heart of of Earth. Hope spots, you know, it's emerged now since 2009 into a a system of nearly 140 places around the world, each one with a champion, an individual or group of individuals or an institution that has stepped up and said, yes, we commit to going from where we are to get to a better place to gather information, to tell stories, and to become a part of this network. Moving, ultimately, the goal is joining with, well, actually, Mission Blue now has more than 200 partner organizations around the world. And and many of them have this commitment that the United Nations has also signed on to. Basically, Let's, let's aim and let's let's secure at least thirty percent of the land and of the ocean by 2030. The catchphrase is "30 by 30," but it's more than just a you know a slogan. It's um, real.
0: Let's uh, list some of the threats to the oceans. We know about plastic. Do we know enough about carbon that is saturating the oceans uh, and reducing the oxygen content? We know about the dying reefs. Uh, We know about the the incredible effect on fish stocks of industrial fishing with technologies, as you've explained. Technologies that aren't just huge fishing trawlers, they extend to the domestic angler with a fish finder. Everywhere, the technology is attacking the wildlife of the ocean. the ocean itself is not what it was. And we have reason, I believe, and please correct me or explain, to worry about the directions of ocean currents.
1: That, that too, I would say that our impact on, on the physical and chemical and biological nature of the planet. Comprehensively, we're changing the nature of nature. We've been more mindful of our impact on the land and freshwater, and it's enormous. I think part of the reason we've gotten away with some of our our changes on the land for so long is because the ocean until about the middle of the 20th century has remained largely intact. Long before then, we had even using relatively simple technologies were able to bring cod down to a low level but we've gone even further in the 20th century and now into the 21st so when you look at the the number of once really abundant creatures in the sea cod herring the the squid and whales we our our ability to destroy, to eliminate, to kill things. It's really extraordinary. But we also have the power to protect to, through understanding, through, through knowing. You ask, what are the biggest problems? Well, what we're putting into the ocean is clearly a big problem. And it isn't just plastic, although that's a pretty obvious and, and the dominating uh, feature that does more than just look unsightly. It's killing things. Uh, Hundreds of thousands of dolphins and whales and seabirds and turtles, as well as fish, continue to get killed by discarded fishing nets and lines. Those that were deployed using those first synthetic materials back in the 1960s, they're still out there. They don't degrade. I mean, if they do, and some do to some extent, they just go down to the molecular level, become not just microplastics, but nanoplastics, which is really almost more frightening than the big chunks of plastic, because once they get to that level, they get lofted into the air, they can pass through the, the cell walls and, and tissues, get into the actual bloodstream, There are concerns about it entering a little micro nanoplastics entering the human food chain through the water, through the air that we breathe, and reaching all parts of our body, including our brains. So, I mean, do, should we worry? Well, it's the unknown that causes us to worry. We really don't know what the impact of all this, these synthetic materials on the environment and on us. We, we could see some of it, but a lot of it is still a big unknown. But Beyond that, excess carbon dioxide that we're putting into the atmosphere, entering the ocean. The ocean has absorbed quite a lot of it, but there's a point beyond which the CO2 becomes carbonic acid. Ocean acidification is changing the chemistry of the ocean. Bad news for oysters, (laughs) bad news for coral reefs, bad news for just about everything that lives in the ocean. Unless you like it more acidic, And those creatures that do are saying, yes, our time has come. So you think about all those little microbes that like a more acidic environment that have not had this kind of system for a very long time. They're suddenly prospering, bringing about further changes in ocean chemistry. So,
0: Uh, Linda, would you like to, sorry, I beg your pardon. Linda, I saw you raising your hand. Jump in.
2: Uh, Yeah, Sylvia, you know, this is, it's such a dire situation for oceans all over the world. And your foundation, uh, the Alliance and Mission Blue have cited two case studies in materials that I've seen of hope spots, Spain's Balearic Islands and uh, the California, the Gulf of California. Why are they hope spots? And... What should we learn from them?
1: Well, the whole, the goal is to bring about enhanced care protection for the ocean. So every Hope Spot has that built in. Some of the places start out in places that are not in great condition. Others, like the National Geographic's Pristine Seas Program, identify critical areas that are already in pretty good shape and you could say the Gulf of California is one of those although it's really been overfished and like all other places on the planet it feels the effect of global warming and ocean acidification but compared to say San Francisco Bay <laughs> it is another hope spot not in such great condition but with care you can go from decline to recovery to better health So you could ask that question about every one of those hope spots. Why this place? Because the goal is to go from wherever you are to improve it and ultimately to try to secure full protection to reach that 30 by 30, 30 percent of the ocean fully protected by 2030. It's only within the next decade.
0: How do you uh, remediate the ocean? How do you create one of these hope spots? What is the remediation that the that the local population or the individual can undertake?
1: Well, what, knowing what we are putting into the ocean causes problems, and also the flip side of that is what we're taking out. The decline of coral reefs in the Caribbean, for example, was determined to be a lot of things, but included The removal of the lobsters, the removal of the grouper, the removal of the sharks, the removal of this and that and the other thing, the coral reef or kelp forest or the ocean itself is not just about the iconic things that we know and love, like coral reefs. They're systems. They're complicated. And when you remove a piece of that system, like the top predators, or when you take parrotfish, the grazing animals, out of a coral reef, you disrupt the system. It's like if you take the taxi, taxi cabs or the doctors or the garbage collectors out of New York City. It's not just about the buildings. It's about a system that functions. And, and looking at the whole system, we now for the first time are able as humans to do what none of our predecessors could do as smart as they were and that elephants can't do, smart as they are, or whales, and I know some pretty smart fish, and birds, and all these creatures, have intelligence, but they don't have the gift, the superpower that humans have of gathering knowledge, passing it along, gathering, passing it along, so that here, in the 21st century, we have the best chance we will ever have to look at the whole system and how it functions, and, and to take away what we're doing that is harmful. So stop killing things. When we, we stop killing the fish in a coral reef, it's amazing how recovery is possible. When we stop sewage outfall or flowing into an area, it's amazing. You can actually see the difference. You can measure the difference. We know what the problems are and that's the first step towards saying, okay, you wanna make it better? And look at what we're doing that's causing harm. And we are actually the agents of causing harm, and we're also the agents of reversing the harm. That's the great news. We have the power. And it comes starts with knowing. I, mean, no, no.
2: I think that, uh, Celia, sometimes we have the knowledge and we just willfully ignore it. I, I can think of things like uh, overfishing. Yeah. Uh, you, you mentioned cod. Uh, and cod has been overfished for a long time. And we've had moratorium on, on overfishing cod. And there have been workarounds by the fishermen themselves. I mean, by the very people whose livelihood depends on, on fishing. So this is not such a simple thing when there is this, this willful, um, uh, you know, uh, d- disdain of, of doing what would be right because of traditional occupations. Um, Chesapeake Bay is probably another case in point about that with, with crabbing. Uh, everybody wants to crab and if everybody gets to crab, if everybody gets a crab pot, there aren't gonna be any crabs.
1: But- You got that right. <laughs> because these are wild creatures and they're free. We think of free groceries, let's go after them, whether it's recreationally or, or commercially, or on a bigger scale industrially. So, uh, one really critical aspect of our way of looking at the ocean today is to, is to look at, at how we regard life in the ocean. Right now, we use the term seafood to really address creatures that live in the sea. We don't speak of all the animals on land or plants as land food, but if it moves in the ocean, <laughs> it's seafood and it's free, free goods. we it, It's not. We're all paying the cost, but fish, lobsters, crabs, all those creatures have an accounting base of zero. We're not paying the true cost when we extract them, and the laws that make it okay to do this were formed largely during a time when the world was a different place. We've seen a 90% plus drop of many of these species, including cod and herring and sharks and tunas. In the Pacific, only about 3% of the bluefin tunas remain, but you can find them in sushi restaurants and in salads and, you know, they're, they're still commercially taken. And we are so good at taking now that we could actually have gone past the point of no return for some of these species. But the other thing we have to really get clear, and we should take an objective look at this, really, we, we, we gave up whaling. And why? Because we started to look at whales differently. They once were regarded as, as you know, something to eat or sell. They were, they were <laughs> commercially traded products. We look at fish as commercially traded products. We, we take them by the ton. We refer to them as stocks. We don't think of them as individuals. We certainly don't think of them as carbon-based units that are critically important for climate. But we think of them as money. Mostly it's money. Or they're free. You can either freely take them and sell them or you can just take them and use them for (laughs) for lunch but who actually needs to eat wild things from the ocean some people do coastal communities island countries you can ask the same thing about who really needs bush meat people the forest people who really are have traditional not just ways of, of of culinary habits, but they really are reliant on wild animals for food, and yet when you think who needs to eat from the ocean, not for money but for sustenance, it's a fairly small number as compared to what gets taken to sell. So, Sylvia,
0: Sylvia, let me interrupt you, because I want to ask what To you yourself, a biologist, somebody who's enormously concerned, what do you do in your life to help the ocean? What don't you eat? What don't you buy? What don't you throw away?
1: Well, I know what what crabs and lobsters and clams and all the wonderful things from the ocean, I know what they taste like, but I also know them as living creatures that I've come to respect for more than than just a piece of meat on my plate. So I've given it up for a long time. I, I, I know too much. <laughs> I also know this, that people say, got to eat fish for my health. Well, maybe you should consider not eating fish for your health because of what they have been eating. The bioaccumulation, and I don't mean just micro and nanoplastics, although that too, it's what we've been putting into the ocean, <laughs> mostly in the last 100 years at an increasing rate of stuff you don't want in you, the higher up the food chain, the more accumulation of the substances that you really don't want in you. So food is a big issue and people are becoming increasingly conscious of a better diet for better health and eating lower in the food chain. So I I listen up to the science. and I also listen up to the ecology of the oceans Tuna is much more important swimming in the ocean than it is swimming with lemon slices and butter on my plate. Linda, you get the last question. We're nearly out of time.
2: All right. Sylvia, even if we change our our eating behaviors, we have to change a whole panoply of other behaviors um, because we want to avoid the acidification of ocean and other pollution in the ocean. as we approach the UN Climate Change Conference in on November 1st to 12th of this year in Scotland, um, where does the ocean fit in the agenda? Is that high on the agenda of the Climate Change Conference or is it not? It, where, where, where is it in your knowledge?
1: Climate is achieving prominence in the, as never before. And it's just, just follow the science, follow the carbon. Most of it's in the ocean. Carbon capturing, oxygen generation, carbon sequestration, mangroves, seagrasses and all living things in the ocean are holding the carbon in place. When you clear cut or burn a forest, the carbon gets released. When you clear cut and take fish and other creatures out of the sea, you release CO2 and, and undermine the carbon capturing mechanisms so, I have a good solid year to think about these things. <laughs> the pandemic year that hasn't ended yet, the pandemic era. I've been given a chance to kick back and look at these things that I'm encouraging everyone to do. The solution is in the mirror. We have the power to look at the evidence of our impact on nature, on the, the ocean, how do we know that the ocean affects climate and the climate affects ocean, but also what are we doing about it? I mean, I really tried and I hope everyone will try. Sylvia, you
0: have written or are working on a book to be published in November by National Geographic on these issues. What is it called?
1: The name of the book is National Geographic Ocean, a global odyssey. And it is an odyssey, a journey of story of the ocean, of how it came to be. What is water? And how do we know what we know? With profiles of dozens of explorers and scientists and individuals who are truly making a difference, causing hope for the future of the ocean and (laughs) of us, too. And uh, it can be (laughs) pre-ordered. Indeed, anybody can order from National Geographic and, and elsewhere, but I love the opportunity to really give some deep thinking, if you will, about the state of the ocean as it is today and how it might be in the future, depending on what we do or what we fail to do. So we
0: have to end
1: that, um, but
0: I implore you to come
1: back. You are so interesting
0: and, and so Exciting to have on the program. That is our show for today. Watch what you eat. It is very important. Until next week. Cheers. Our program, White House Chronicle, is on offer as a podcast for you to enjoy. Full shows on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, and all major audio platforms.
2: Subscribe and take us with you in your part.